Hi. Here we go. Saddle up. Ooh. Belly up to the bar. Belly up to the We might need a bar for this one. <laughs> you got anything in that coffee there you're drinking? Well, you got anything a little extra? They have set the bar high <laughs> on this. Hello, everybody. I'm Maddie Blake. With me uh, from Brooklyn is the great Anthony Arkin. Do I need to say that where you are now? I don't no. even know where you are. No. Okay. I'd rather. I'm talking to Maddie, and he's north of here. I'd rather have not have people know where I am. We are separated, which is of note. Uh, we do the podcast with a wonderful app called uh, whatever it's called. I don't know. Who cares? Well, I, I'm beginning to think that maybe this podcast is, again, not going to bury the lead because I'm too excited. This is like a kid on Christmas morning. <laughs> and my wife, the beautiful and talented Yoko, noticed this. She goes, it's, it's unbelievable. She says, oh, my God, this movie must be terrible. And I said, why? She said, because you're prancing around the house all excited. <laughs> so I'm wondering if this podcast is I should find terrible paranormal movies and then present them to you and then just let you go. Because I'm so excited to hear you talk about this film. Like, I'm gleeful. I am. It's like, I had this friend. Do you ever have that friend? I think everyone has this friend that would, like, start fights and then just sit back and watch. Like, one of those. Well, I'm not I'm not from Boston, so no. <laughs> A person who just, like, loved to watch drama. And like, I've, I hate, I'm not that type of person, but with this, I am. I can't wait to hear you. Mm-hmm your take on this mm-hmm. film vice versa <laughs> vice versa i don't even want to say anything about it. i just want to let yeah. you go i want to open the cage door it's like the wwe i want to let you in the cage and let you destroy the heavyweight champion there's so much going on and i think that it'd be better to put the genie in the bottle for a second Agreed. regroup talk about the week maybe other stuff that's come up because this is a firecracker agreed this is like an m80 in a garbage can well uh we do have a lot on the table, we have some messages from fans that I want to get to. Uh, we also have some mistakes and corrections from last week that I'd like to address. This movie that we're doing today is called The Unbelievers, and it stars Martin Sheen. I it's said, not called The Unbelievers. You're wrong already. Oh, what is it called? It's called The Believers. Oh, gee. <laughs> Does it really matter what it's called? You can't, I mean, I've never heard anybody mess up their apology for having messed up. Do you know what before. that is? Well, do, you know, do you know what that is? Is because it's just locked down, dude. No, no. I, this is there's a direct reason I just said the unbelievers. I was just before I hit record thinking about what I was gonna because I do clever titles for our episode titles. So I was gonna do this like uh Maddie and Tony can't believe it's not butter, um, the unbelievable believers. <laughs> like I was toying with the idea, like how can I use unbelievers and believers? And that's why I said that. Last week I said that it stars Charlie Sheen inadvertently oh yeah no i didn't catch you saying that that's not true it's martin sheen although definitely martin sheen although i think charlie sheen might have done okay in this i'd like to see an update with charlie i would actually i wonder how he's doing and maybe emilio as uh as richard mazer have i ever done my uh oh that would be a great stunt cast um have i ever done my you know i only do weird impressions as it's been you know, as we've previously shown on this podcast. Well, I don't know what that means. Does it mean that your impressions are weird or you're doing weird, like the picking weird choices? Yeah, I think the latter. Like my impressions seem to be strange and very specific. Tom DeLonge. I know that one. Yeah, you know, like, so I don't do like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I do. You do Stallone. I do Stallone, which is pretty common. Yeah. Um, 
but I'll do like, you know, Nick Nolte from Cape Fear talking on the phone. I'll do Jason Bateman convincing someone to do something. You know what I mean? Very odd and very specific. I think so. So uh, are you are you kind of tooting your own horn here a little bit saying like you're I, I mean, I, these are great impressions. I mean, who's denying it? I, I've, you, you're a comedian. You're, you have a comedian background. You've been on the radio. You do voices. It's like, yeah, no, I feel like everybody would believe. I feel like I'm apologizing ahead of time because like, they're so weird and specific that I don't think people will get them. Let other people say if they're weird. I, I think that's up for the audience to decide. God. You should just stick to your guns. And say, this is what I, this is the, these are the impressions I do. You and I are so damaged. <laughs> you're so funny. You're like, no, I'm not. And then I'm like, my impressions <laughs> suck and are weird. You're like, no, they're not. We should just go to counseling together. never talk about this when there's any likelihood people will overhear, <laughs> i.e. a podcast. All right. Um, well, I do Charlie Sheen. Uh, in his round of in those interviews he did when he was all like crazy. Oh, when he went a little crazy yeah. there? So this, yeah. Oh, you do. This is my Charlie Sheen doing interviews in the uh, mid-2000s, I guess it was. I got tiger blood. I'm telling you right now. I've got tiger blood and I can do whatever I want. Now you might think that I've got a problem. I don't have a problem. You got the problem. Thank you. Honestly, this is, I'm the wrong audience because I've never heard him say that. <laughs> I've only seen it written in tweets and stuff that he said it. So I don't know what he sounded like saying. Kind of like that. It's, it sent chills down my spine, whatever it was you were doing, but I don't know what, that it was Charlie Sheen. Hey man, I've got 14 girls living with me right now. There's five in the kitchen. Okay. I got tiger blood. Sounds a little how like Tom DeLonge might speak. Here's my Martin Sheen. Nya, 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 nya. <laughs> um, did you have a, an impression that you were going to do? Nope. Uh, is there something from? No. Nope. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Obviously, we're excited about this movie. Oh, my God. Did anything else happen yep. of note this week? With Another you mistake, or not really a mistake, maybe an oversight. Oh, uh, you, you said, and again, these come from our Me fans. and you can, you can you can reach us on our social media, which is uh, we're on social media at Rated Paranormal. Um, on everything, Why are you telling people where they can criticize us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make really it easy point. for them. That's a really good point. Um, well, no, I wouldn't okay. I, honestly. What did what did we do wrong? You, you, How do we fix it? Uh, you, Tony, inadvertently said that there was a character named Dora, and uh, the actress was also named Dora. And you erroneously said yeah. she's the only character named with the only character with the same real name as the character they're playing. Oh, is there another Someone one? Someone said, what about Bigfoot? Uh, was he? I don't remember them. I don't remember the credits uh, accurately. No, then. actually, um, you... I thought it was Brian Blazing Steel or whatever his <laughs> name was. But look, honestly, you're you, you, when you're right, you're right. Uh, well, I like that. I mean, when the, when the Bigfoot was CGI'd, they're kind of correct. Cause that's not the guy in the suit, right? That's just Bigfoot. No, absolutely. So that's Bigfoot. And it's based on the Gimlin movie. Boom. Clearly you can see some, uh, and that's, that's Bigfoot. So I stand corrected. <laughs> uh, anytime I make these mistakes and they're, they will be coming fast <laughs> and furious at you. Let us know. Uh, so this movie, the believers in 1987 deals with subjects that we have talked about about before Tony. Um, and it's funny because it, it deals with like, you know, Santeria and black magic. 
and there's some devil worship in there. And I realized kind of like halfway through it that this is very much a satanic panic movie or the results of maybe the satanic panic, because as we discussed in a previous episode, if you go to our episode from February 4th called The Devil Went Down to Greenwich Village, we talked about a movie called The Seventh Victim, and we talked about the satanic panic. Um, and I thought, and I don't know if you agree, that this movie in a lot of ways is almost like the result of the satanic panic because it has to do with like people infiltrating society and they're really Satanists, yeah. right? And, and dead kids and sacrifices and things that yeah. didn't really happen, but we thought were happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there's this movie was made possible at the time by a real interest in that. And, and a, you know, in 87, when this came out, I think that was prime time for Satanic Panic, right? That was, uh, that was, you know, right in the middle of yes. it. Yes. I think. Yes. I know it started earlier than that. But, um, but I also, you know, this is, I mean, it's, it's, this movie's DNA is so deep in other horror movies from the past as well that yeah. dealt with similar things. I mean, I think it owes more to Rosemary's baby than to satanic panic, but I think satanic panic probably helped make it a bit of a pop event when it came out. Well, it's funny. You think of Rosemary's baby and I wonder how much things like that specifically that movie contributed to the things that we kind of created in the satanic panic, right? Like that goes in our, it's just what we say about the UFO stuff. The government puts these images out there, according to some, so that when it really does happen, we're not completely shocked. We've seen it before. It goes in our subconscious. And so the whole notion of like the whole condo complex being in on it is a very satanic panic type of thing. Cause they told us, well, the local butcher's a Satanist. The cop, is a Satanist and you don't know it. Right. Yeah. And I wonder how much that came from images like that. Like think of a suburban couple in the, in the middle of the satanic panic who knows nothing about religion, some other places or Satanism or anything, but they read an article about this evil cabal of Satanists who are trying to steal children and kill them. Right. And 20 years before that, as a couple, they went and saw Rosemary's baby. And so they're not making the direct link, but they're seeing a room full of people somewhere in their mind's DNA doing this secret mm. bloody stuff. And it kind of is like, oh yeah, that's how it happens. You know, that's how it happens. And these people get together. Right. And I thought of that during this movie because there's scenes like the cops arriving at these child scenes, like that never happened in New York city. Like to my knowledge, like on a, there wasn't, you know, on a mass scale where there's like picking up no, children. I bet, you, I bet you this did happen in New York <laughs> city. And I, I bet you it happens on a regular basis that's in probably, this town. That's probably true. I mean, <sighs> I, guess I just don't think it's organized. Let's put it that way. Thank you. I think it's Be just disorganized. Better way to but say I it. don't, you know, yes. Better um, way to say it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I mean, that, but that brings up, an, but let me, you know, let me stop you for mm -hmm, a second. Now mm -hmm. that we're on like this really heavy philosophical idea, mm -hmm. you're kind of making a case for a skeptical approach to all this in a way saying that like really people are thinking they're seeing things because they saw it in a movie 20 years ago. And maybe there's some truth to that. But I also think that, I mean, Rosemary's Baby is an interesting case because I, I feel like that has an accuracy to it. And it's not like, because we know Satanic Panic, the type that existed then, you know, in the 80s was was based on false information. It doesn't mean there aren't Satanic cults and weren't, and that there weren't 
people up to very nefarious things in private groups, in cults and stuff all over the country and all over the world. So the, it's not like those two things are mutually exclusive, you know? A hundred percent. And and I think that's a cool little role reversal with us. So I'm trying to be the pragmatic, like <laughs> one and you're reminding right. me that, Hey, these things are real. Cause I, <laughs> we know where I stand. Yes. A hundred percent. Um, but like you said, this, the, 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 it wasn't, that's a great way to say it. Like there was no clear, easy, like, Oh, the Satan killer's back again in New York city and 15 more kids are dead. Like it's just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. Um, or it, or it right. hasn't to our knowledge, I guess. But when you see these type of things done over and over again until they become almost a cliche, then when you read something that's proposing to be real, it's easier to go like, oh, yeah, that's probably how that happens. You know, people get together and the, the, chief, sure. of, the chief of police is a Satanist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm, it's right. just because it's kind and of And then the case breaks and everybody, everybody relaxes a little bit because they figure out what it was. But right. like, you know, look at, uh, I mean, look at Son of Sam. Oh. I mean, just because a psychologist came in and told you what their interpretation of that event was doesn't mean that, you know, for other people, that isn't evidence of what we're talking about. I mean, this guy straight up said he was talking to yeah, bro. a satanic dog. Trust me. So and, and I, you know, yeah, there's like Mark David Chapman. There's some weird paranormal stuff around him. Um, well, anyway, not my favorite topic. Like, honestly, agreed. like I, I, you know, not that, you know, we can't touch on it once in a while, but I, I, you know, that stuff is, uh, that's great for like Netflix crime binges yeah. for me. Cause I love what they do for those crime shows. They're very addictive, but like, yeah. I, I, I get kind of, kind of a, about making a little bit of a celebration of, of some weird stuff. Mm, yeah, I of, just watched actually the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix. It's so well oh, done, right? God. So well done. And re- I mean, that's that's an elevated piece of documentary Wicked. work, I think. And and it really, I think why is is because almost to your point, they 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 really focus on the investigators and and that's yeah how the investigation it's broke all down. about that right yes yeah. as, and it and and them as people like these interviews with these cops in that show, I thought was as like more riveting than than True Detective. I just was so invested in them and learning about them and their jobs and so 100% it that show I think avoided the the glamorizing of of the case as much as it did really focus on these guys who cracked it um, really did yeah good show off topic for us but man not really in a way not I mean not that's really. actually not so off topic it's devil worship that it, guy, you know supposedly a devil worshiper so there you go there's another show now that we're on this topic yeah. just to connect that I saw um that's uh about uh the the uh weird um death that occurred at the cecil hotel in hollywood okay you saw that yep. too interesting how the night stalker story connects there um very weird shows to binge right after like because we did that we binged one and then the other and we're like oh my god it's like a two-part nightmare so i remember distinctly when that video came out because before it was cool you know i was into all this stuff <laughs> and I yeah. remember when that video came out and it was put on sites that I followed that were like paranormal themed. And it was presented as, is this proof of a ghost? Question. Yeah, mark. I remember that. Right? That was the clickbait on that. it. Like, is this proof of a poltergeist yeah. act, uh, encounter? I knew nothing about her. I knew nothing about the hotel. Mm-hmm. And I watched that video kept popping up in my feed over and over again. Um, and if you don't know, we're talking about this, this documentary called the Cecil Hotel. Or I think, is that what it's called? The Cecil? The actual name of the documentary, I think. It's called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. This yeah. young woman, unfortunately, died, and, and there was a weird video of her on an elevator captured by security footage, and that's what we're referencing. 
Um, and then the more I learned, I studied about that video. It. Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I like a lot of people. I was fascinated by it, and then the case broke, and it was just this tragedy, and it was just awful. <sighs> I still think there's plenty of un, un. I think there's a mystery there still, yeah. but. When I saw that video, I, I got to tell you, like, and this is actually an interesting thing to talk about how we look at these videos, because so much can be faked and so much is unknown and stuff. But I mean, maybe it's because I'm an actor or, you know, Amelia and I both act, but we looked at that video and both of us were like, no, she's having a private moment. Mm. I didn't see it as um as anything. Um, I thought I saw it as odd behavior, but one that you could certainly do if you were alone and thought you were alone or having some kind of like emotional discomfort or something. I, I didn't see anything in it that couldn't be looked at that way, but it was spooky, man. And that's, a, th those are good series on Netflix. That's what it's for. Let's face it. You're also an editor and um, editing of that video became. I wish I'd edit myself once in a while. Jeez. <laughs> the editing of that particular video in the elevator, the video was edited. And, and I was thinking of you as an editor, if you noticed some jerky or some weird movements and even the time code was warped and weird. So it was edited, mm -hmm. but that fed into conspiracy theories that turned out not to be it did. true. But when the cops come on and talk about it, I mean, and not to give anything away, mm -hmm. but I think this is an important point. Yes. The cops came out and said, like, listen, you know, we did edit that video before we put it out and we did that for a very good reason. There's information we didn't want the public to know. We didn't want to show the timestamp and we needed to cut a little piece out um for our investigate for investigative purposes so it's like it really bothers me when armchair investigators feel that they're you know assume they're getting the information that the police are getting it's 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 absurd that's what made me so crazy watching that as like one of the guys who they focus on he's like i really needed closure I'm like, who the f are oh, you? You're not stopping what? <laughs> closure. You didn't know her. You don't know don't anyone involved with it. You're 3,000 miles away in your apartment watching on YouTube. Like, next, you need closure. Next creepy, next creepy Netflix shows about you, buddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where were you that night? <laughs> I, I want to see that show. Yeah. Um, we also we also have a uh, as you know, uh, you can reach out to us and leave us a voicemail. We're going to tell you how to do that in just a second, but uh, like our friend Alan here did. Hey, guys, it's Alan with Cross the Line 1524. Uh, as I told Maddie a couple of weeks ago, besides our podcast, you guys are definitely my favorite podcast. I uh, love the way you dissect old movies, talk about the paranormal. Uh, but I got one question for Anthony. What's up with the cat? Have you talked about animal exorcisms, possibly? I don't know. Uh, Maddie? I wanted to talk real quick about the $6 million man, Andre the Giant Bigfoot episodes. Did you know, uh, or do you remember, I guess, that those are based on the fact that aliens actually landed on Earth and released Bigfoot Sasquatch to observe. A lot like what some people are saying is happening now with Bigfoot sightings. Guys, take care. Love the podcast. Talk to you soon. And Anthony, get that check, cat checked out, man. Get her checked out. <laughs> that's the best. That's great. I told you, I love our fans, man. I love them. That is Alan Stenger. That now, Alan made my day. You might've heard him mention his podcast, cross the line, 1524, cross the line, 1524, the common man's podcast. I was a guest on his podcast talking about Oak Island. That's how we met. And so 
in his, you know, looking me up, he found Rated P for Paranormal, our podcast, and he is now a listener. Um, So check out them, Cross the Line 1524, the Common Man's podcast. The title refers to that they, him and his friends who get together and, and talk at this bar, they are from... Uh, they are from a part of Indiana where they were really near each other, but they were crossed the line in different counties. So they were high school rivals and now they're friends, which I think is just really fun. Oh, that's right? great. That's a great idea. For right. Sure. So it's yeah. funny when he first sent me the request for the interview, um, you know, uh, Colleen handles the, my scheduling for appearances and stuff. And I, she sent me the title cross the line. I was like, uh, I don't know. Cross the line. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought it was like some, that turns out they're the sweetest like Midwestern guys. I thought it was like cross the line. Like we're going to cross the line and push the boundaries of decency. <laughs> we're going to be offensive. Yeah. On it's purpose. the opposite. They're super nice. And um, that was a great message. Yeah, fantastic. That was great. Uh, yeah. You know, as far as the cat's concerned, we've, we've had him checked out. Um, there's something up with him. We know that we've learned to live with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the most important thing is everybody realized that he's really fine. Like, it sounds like he's uh, in pain. It sounds like he's upset. That This is how he likes to talk. I I, I just need to stress that. But thanks, everybody, for your concern. I, I appreciate it. I, I hear it. I, see, I don't know cats. I don't, I'm a dog owner. But he sounds like he just wants to say hi to me. Like, he doesn't sound distressed. It sounds pretty like he's just going like, hey, I'm it's, here. It sounds it sounds awful. Let's face it. It's terrifying. <laughs> and it's it's on any other cat. It would be a, a, a very alarming situation. But gotcha. he's, uh, okay. he's just a weirdo. And let me address also what Alan was saying. Uh, we had referenced in last week's episode. You can go back and listen. Um, we had referenced. Andre the Giant playing Bigfoot on the $6 million man. And interesting, we actually talked about some people who believe it's related to UFOs. And isn't it funny that that episode, actually, that's where Bigfoot came from, I guess. I don't remember that part of it. I was, again, I was six years old, I think. But uh, apparently Bigfoot, they made that connection way back then with the $6 million man. Was that a plant? Was that a plant from someone who knew working with Hollywood executives? Start putting that in our subconscious. Having spent time in Hollywood, uh, I'd suspect I'd be suspicious of of that as an effective route. Or was it a bunch of I guys in 1973 on a coke binge going, you know what? You know where Bigfoot <laughs> comes from? UFOs. Hey, good idea, Charlie. Hey, both things are possible. That's what I like to believe is that it's all true. <laughs> so there. Carrie uh, uh, Taylor uh, reached out to us on Facebook. This was for that episode, Shut Up and Squatch, last week when we uh, reviewed a Sasquatch found footage film. Uh, Kerrig says, all right, I got a comment on this and uh, then I'll settle down. Love the episode. I really enjoy the format and your conversation. I thought you guys are spot on with your overall critique. And he's talking about the movie Exists that we watched. Three things about the movie. First, I think I'm done with handheld first-person POV found footage. I didn't like Blair Witch or Cloverfield for these reasons, just too shaky and hard to watch. Second, I thought the story overall was a decent Bigfoot adventure. Not over-the-top horror, but things like the nest, the baby, and the knocks, throwing objects and howls were all good Bigfoot things. Third, yes, the kids were a bit much with their typical behavior, so maybe a better plot for them could have worked. Okay, rambling. Thanks again, guys, for a great podcast. P.S., 
like the episode even more since you mentioned me specifically from my comment on Twitter. Maddie, you did all right with the pronunciation of Kerrig. So thank you. Thank you, Kerrig. Nice. Uh, Tony, thoughts on, on any of Kerrig's thoughts? Um, uh, my thoughts are that, uh, you know, I, st- I, st- I stand by my viewing our, and our assessment of the movie, but I think what should be said is that whenever I think whenever we get critical, so sorry, that's, I don't oh, even know who's, we don't even have a phone, so I don't know why that's happening. <laughs> well, that could be me. That's me. <laughs> no, that's me. I'm kidding. I don't know. I'm kidding. It'll stop in a second. Yeah. As I think, I think it's worth noting that when Matt, Maddie and I are critical of a movie or hard on it or have a rough experience with it, pick it apart, we still love it. Like with with notable exceptions, with films that were that somehow offend us, or we feel like they're really they're really being um, uh, manipulative with the, with the facts, or or kind of playing cute with it. Generally, we just love movies. So I I love exists. I I loved seeing it, even though I had issues with it. You know, I I'm glad it's there. I'm glad Eduardo Sanchez made it. I'm thrilled that I could spend an hour and a half of my life in, you know, enjoying it and, and then my way picking it apart. That's kind of what gives me a lot of pleasure. And so, you know, if we ever come off like snotty to things, I know we can, we're sarcastic, but really we love, we love this stuff for real. And um, we know what goes into making it, which is why it's sometimes hard to be critical of stuff. Um, not just because we'd like to get cast in something again, but but because, you know, we know what it's like. So um, we all have different opinions, but it, de- it definitely comes from a place of love. If you listen carefully to this podcast, you will find two people who, when they do not like something, again, with maybe two exceptions since we've been doing this, we fall over ourselves. We trip over ourselves, ap- apologizing and qualifying that we admire the filmmakers. We admire the actors. Like, go keep making. We love you. We love you. Love you. But this and mm-hmm. this and this and this, right? And this might be a really yep. good example of that because there's some people <laughs> in this movie that I love, and oh boy, <laughs> I feel well. There's a lot of people in this movie. In this movie, I actually kind of know. I mean, I know some of the people who made it, and I don't want to, yes. you know, particularly say negative things about you know, a movie that my friends have been in. Like, that's weird. Yes. I know someone in this movie too. Um, but f- it. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe? Ibedala. Ibedala. Yes. I do believe. A New York psychiatrist who works for the New York City Police Department finds that a cult has invaded his area, perhaps targeting his own kid, Tony, 1987's The Believers. Um, as I mentioned, I am very excited to hear your, your opinion on this film. Uh, I would say this uh, to start off the conversation. I'm not going to ask one of my rhetorical questions because I want to try to do this as respectfully as we can. One of the warning signs for me when we picked this was it was a recommendation from a fan. And uh, when I saw the cast list and I saw its subject matter, I thought to myself, the fact that I don't know that this movie exists is a bad sign. That's good math that you just did there, because there's there is no reason why this assembly of actors should be in a movie that you wouldn't really know exactly about. so something bad went something went wrong it's very rare that you see a cast like that 
and 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 you and and it's like never heard of this. Oh my god, it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. So yeah, um, there are some issues. I feel like this movie comes from 1987. Uh, I was 14 or 15 then, I guess. And I feel like if I if I wrote a screenplay about this topic at 14 or 15, it would have been really similar to this. It would have been pretty spot on similar. Yes, like the dialogue. You know what what I what I found on this viewing to be the most incredible part of it is how much Nighthawks they were able to cram into this wow. movie. Wow. Where it doesn't belong. Yes. So why is Nighthawks in this movie? Because I think the director wanted to make a film noir, gumshoe, New York City cop movie, but paranormal. Devil worship. I think that was his... Okay. For example, okay, one of the things this movie will make you want to do is start smoking again. Or maybe the opposite effect, because in nearly every scene, somebody is smoking for no reason. Everyone just starts lighting up. It's 1987, not 1967. And so I went, okay, that's his noir. Like, I'm just going to blow smoke in your face post-coital. Like, oh, that was beautiful. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> and, there's, and you can tell half the people have never smoked before. <laughs> and they're just holding it weird. And I'm like, okay, he wants this to be a film noir. He wants this to be. That's interesting. I, that's what I took. Like, the cigarette was just an easy way to. I, I hadn't thought of that. But I think, you know, I think you're right about that. That that is a, That is like a trope from noir that is oddly placed here. It doesn't seem to make any sense to have it be here. Yeah. You know, you can tell when can a we, person knows how to smoke, they hold the cigarette a certain way. And then when an actor doesn't know, it uh, looks bad. Absolutely. Yeah. My f- favorite way that people smoke in movies is how the Germans smoked in like the seventies <laughs> in movies. They held it like between their pinky and their thumb yes. and did this weird, like reverse Turn hand, their hand thing. Up. Oh, it's yes, fantastic. Yes, yes. So good. Um, I don't feel like we've set the table here for people. I don't feel like they know what we're talking I don't, about because because I don't know where to begin. All right, go ahead. You go. I don't. I. I, I mean. I, okay. It. it I. Re, okay. I remember seeing this in the theater. I saw this. It came out in eighty-seven, so I was about 18, 18 or nineteen when this came out. Um, I saw it with my dad because we like to go to scary movies together and stuff. Awesome. And um. I remember things about it to this day. And to be totally fair, there are two scenes in it that are horror uh, royalty. Hmm. They're like very famous horror scenes in it. And and you'll see them in um, retrospectives of horror movies as a couple of really notable, horrific scenes. Uh, um, her, uh, Charlie, um, Charlie Sheen, Martin Sheen's wife in the, mo- in the movie, dies in, in the first five minutes and then the rest of the movie takes place like a year after she's died and he's a, a, a widowed father and it's about kind of him raising this trying to be a single dad but the first scene shows how she dies and it's pretty it's pretty yeah. rough um and in 87 honestly it really had a lot of impact that sequence um she's making coffee in the morning there's an accident she's standing in a pool of milk that's been spilled on the floor and she goes to adjust a coffee maker that's got a short in it, and she gets electrocuted. Martin Sheen is upstairs taking a shower, and the lights start flickering. He runs downstairs, sees her, starts screaming. We'll talk about the screaming in this in this movie a lot, but um, 
and and the, and his little son is there witnessing this and they can't touch her because she's you know being electrocuted so they'll get fried now of course there are things they could have done i'm not gonna go there you know but um that was pretty horrific at least on my first viewing in 87 and it stayed with me as a pretty heavy sure. moment now i'll tell you why i think it's heavy i think that martin sheen is trying to make a good movie definitely here. i think martin sheen is a is a really good actor oh. who like a lot of really good actors in this movie. Martin Sheen is, is just trying to bring authenticity to this as, as, as much as he can. And I think there's something really powerful about his reaction to this that really stayed with me. It's like watching his wife get electrocuted and he's screaming and it's, it's, it's a really powerful moment. You kind of like dismissed it. So I'm thinking it didn't work for you at all, but. He is not the problem. I agree. Okay. With you. Everything you said is right. It's it is a disturbing scene. His reaction. I mean, he's a phenomenal actor. He's a world class, one of the greatest of that generation. One of the greatest. He's a great screen the, actor. The, yeah, the no problem doubt about it. with that scene, and last week you said you got the feeling that you said this. It's funny. You said uh, sometimes filmmakers who aren't very experienced or aren't very good, at, very good at it or whatever. Um, they attempt they they pick these high emotional stake scenes to do like their first work and and that you got the sense that uh the actors met at craft services right um yeah i felt like that whole first beginning was so rushed to get to that moment like there was no believable setup like a kitchen scene with a family is one of the hardest things to pull off to make it look lived in to make it look natural to make you feel like this is a real family and yet everyone starts there as if it's just a throwaway scene it's so easy i didn't believe her as his mother she was like weirdly mad at him and then she's weirdly happy with him they were just like i felt like it was being crammed in to get to that death and there was i didn't i Don't didn't feel like wrong. that was her kitchen or anything <laughs> i'm just talking about the kill understood when I'm talking okay. about cult status for horror movies, I'm talking about the actual murder. Understood. Death here. This but is the kill. that maybe that's why it didn't land for me as powerfully because I just I was like they're getting to this. I knew she was goner. I like I've never seen the movie before. I didn't know it was coming, and I'm like, oh, this little kiss at the at the kitchen you, table. Okay. Like they're here it comes. I understand. And I just, you got to put yourself. Okay, here I, we have. Let's try to make a little bit of a rule here for ourselves. <laughs> Everybody has to try. To put themselves in in the year that the movie was was made, just a little no, bit. No, because and there I was great in acting. Eighty-seven. Right. I'm saying in eighty-seven that sequence was pretty disturbing, because we hadn't. That was a kind of a surprising death and a very realist, like a very, you know, this this, this horror movie with a lot of voodoo in it. Yeah. Right, starts off with a very mundane suburban situation and mourning that contains in it one of the more horrific, you know, surprise deaths that we had seen in, in, in a movie, like it's notable um, for that. So look, I'm, I'm only picking you apart right here because this is the only thing I like. And I, and if we're going to pick this apart, what do we got? I, okay. We're, we're actually sounds like we're disagreeing. We're not the, the moment of her death is effective. It's very good. It's, it's disturbing. I would agree with that. Uh, yeah. It was it was it was lessened uh, for me by everything around it. I would say that. Okay, I gotcha. I'm I'm interested, but you know, like you're starting to you're starting to say things like you know, first time director and all this stuff. I mean, what you know? Do did, did you look mm -hmm. up 
who directed mm-hmm. it. So that, we know he's not a first time. No, and he did some of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> so that's why I'm kind of shocked by the kitchen well, scene and some other stuff. Debatable. Well, Marathon Man is beloved debatable. by cinephiles, is it not? Or by some, he would be considered a, a, a pretty good heavyweight. He's a, he's done some you know big time films. He he was a, he he's he's a, he has a lot of respect. He's made some very uh, important uh, films culturally. Yes. For sure, Midnight Cowboy was go. a very big deal culturally. I, I'm personally not a huge fan of of Schlesinger's movies, okay. but I, I I have reasons we'll talk about it. I think he's a strange choice to direct this movie for a lot of reasons. Yeah, um, I think that. But he's really experienced. You know, he's done a lot. He'd done a lot of movies by the time he did this. So I just didn't want to give anybody the impression that like this was a first time filmmaker who didn't know technically how to do it. That's part of the problem. He should have known how to control this movie a little bit. Yes, when I quoted you, I was just in terms of uh, in terms of the the thought of why people pick these scenes that and and then sometimes they take them for granted. Like, no, that's those are hot, those are tough to do. It's tough to do a lived-in family kitchen scene and make it feel like again, that's her kitchen and that humans actually lived there. I didn't think they they lived there. Like I felt like you gave more thought. I presented an idea to you as a freaking funnier die video. Just a one-off joke, Pound Ridge, the project we did together. You worked harder to make my living space look like my living space for a funnier die scene than I felt like that kitchen was, if that makes sense. I I agree. I agree. Which is... Not about my talent, my abilities, but agree that they didn't. I mean, I I had some issues with the, I had issues with the art direction. I had is, I had issues with some of the photography. And I don't, I mean, I shouldn't because these are great people. <laughs> I mean, literally, like it's it's shot by this guy, you know, Robbie Mueller, uh, who is a, like one of the great DPs, like great. He worked he worked with Vin Vendors. He did Repo Man. He did all of Jim Jarmusch's movies like Down by Law and Mystery Train and Ghost Dog. He did all kinds of amazing stuff. Also Lars von Trier movies like Dancing in the Dark and wow. and and Breaking the Waves and stuff. An incredibly accomplished DP and was by the t- when he made this had already been a great world-class director of photography. This movie is weird weird looking. The art direction is off. Um something's weird about how it's constructed and I and I, and it I don't know if it's um yeah, you know, ultimately, this is this is the direct. This is when people go, "What did a director do?" This is what a director did. Like, you have this cast, these great people in your in your on your team who've made brilliant, brilliant things before, and you yourself have made great stuff. But this one doesn't work. It's on you. That's what a director wow. does, and it's sometimes really hard to pinpoint. I think what they're doing. You know, what's funny. Um, I think you speak about the the uh, DP. Um, my favorite shot in the film and i think the best shot in the film is the literally very first thing we see martin sheen it's a great right? shot he's jogging and this milk truck truck appears in the horizon and it somehow the milk truck looks scary i don't know how they did that mm-hmm. you know it's like and and, and it's just a, and I, yeah it's a I great go, oh, shot we're off to a good start i'm like this is gonna be and then it quickly doesn't well that's what somebody like you know i I'm I'm sure it was a, a combination of stuff. Schlesinger's accomplished filmmaker. I'm sure he had opinions about shots, but I feel like that was Bobby. And it was like Robbie Mueller, the DP, giving us this gift of clean storytelling in that mm. shot, in that opening shot. Mm. And then um, all these things start coming into play, like 
the cast not really being in the same movie together. Like, okay, okay, here's another thing. Here's another weird one. Screenplay by Mark Frost, who created Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. like with David Lynch. Uh, you know, one for me, one of the greatest TV experiences of all time. Mm-hmm. And then we have a movie here that, you know, Schlesinger and, Mar- and Mark Frost worked on this script for a year before they oh, shot. God. Like, and, and oh, Schlesinger was, is on tape going like, I won't do this until it's perfect. Oh. Like, it must be absolutely, the script must be. That's why we took a year to make sure it when he's like very British and very proper and and then they worked for a year on a script that has like some of the worst cop TV tropes in it that you could see. I was belly laughing, imagining you watching it with some of every line is cliched. Every it's every gumshoe film noir cop on the edge. That's why the, he actually says at one point, you wonder why cops hit the bottle. I'm like, wait, the bottle. It's like, why? Because you got up early in the morning. It was 1987. It wasn't 19, again, 60, when these phrases were first being invented. Like, lethal weapon was made right around this time. And there's, it's, 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 it's just, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. It's so incredibly, incredibly cliched. You mentioned other characters. Everyone's doing like a character. There's no one being a person. Like everyone around Charlie Sheen is doing a, a like a hyper huge over the top, like they all talk to the kid and they all go like, Hey, we're going sailing. We're going, Hey, little buddy boy. Like no one's just talking like a human being. There's, it's unbelievable. Mm. It's unbelievably uncomfortable. And, and poor Martin Sheen has to kind of smile at everyone as they do that. Had you noticed that too? Mm-hmm. He just lost his wife, right. but he's forced in these artificial scenes with people just doing super broad, like car- almost like they're in a commercial, like people in a, acting like, you act in a commercial and he just has to stand there and smile and go, oh, yeah. oh you're cute Uncle Bob or whatever. I was like, oh, it's so painful. It's, it is, it's got some rough spots for sure. For sure. I, I don't even know where to, I mean, it, where, what's hard about it is that I actually do enjoy this movie. Now that's the weird part. Like I could sit and watch it again tonight. It's fun. It's Literally. it's not angering like we've mentioned before where there's no. like something no, offensive. No, 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 no. Although. Don't get us wrong. Although. I was wondering, there's some cultural, I feel like this movie might get canceled I don't, look, I don't need, it, it, I don't, I don't really, I don't even know what to say in that regard. Like it, it, what's sad about that part is that they clearly in their, in their time and place in the world and being the, you know, white dudes that they were, I feel were with the story that they had, let's face it. Maybe this book is, shouldn't, isn't a story that needs to be told anymore, you know, like voodoo in the big city is kind of, eh, I don't know if we need to see that story. <laughs> yeah. And it's very, it's, it's not, it's, it's, and as I've said before, I'm not the most sensitive person in the world, but, but yes, this actually was a little weird to me. Like there were things in it that were like, oh, really? We're going to, oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I will say what's sad about it though, is you can see them working overtime to try to, to try to compensate. Yes. They thought they were elevating this they yes. thought they were being respectful they thought they were trying to be respectful to santeria and like for instance they were trying to give an equal say to people who practice this as a religion and not be disrespectful but nevertheless it turns into like this ridiculous like 50s style like there are choices that are going on in the last half hour where you're just you're we it's like we've gone we've come nowhere this is literally like 
I walked with a zombie from 1930 yeah. and it's just, it became like culturally bad news. And like, I don't think in, intentionally Agreed. at Agreed. all, I think quite the opposite, Agreed. but nevertheless, it just like misfires so bad. Yeah. They actually give a character and, um, a chance and he actually lays out on the nose really badly. Like it's your misunderstanding of our religion. You, cause you, you know, culturally don't understand us. They let him actually say yeah. that, which is there yeah. And Martin Sheen is trying to be a voice yes. of reason in this and give him respect. And it's like, I, I get what they're yes. trying to do, but still in all at the end of the movie, when you've got like a big fake voodoo ritual with knives and a child wearing a oh loin, like a Tarzan <laughs> loincloth. I'm like, what really? It was like, what? Why? Why any of that? Why? This is the modern day. I did what it's, it was, it was crazy. So I like, yeah. they're, they're just, there's it's it's a real lesson i think in in terms of like you know um if you if you're interested in being careful about what you say and and i think there's a big difference between just trying to be careful with what you say and then being like really invested in canceling stuff when it's not yeah. perfect i hate that i, I hate I'm not into that, culture but, but i also am I, I i'm not into it but i i i am i do believe everybody should do better at communicating you know, better, kinder, all of that. Agreed. This is just so messy. It's so messy. There's so many, like, okay, I want to go over some of the parts that made me laugh out loud. Um, Like, okay, <laughs> Martin Sheen at one point says, uh, they didn't tell me this is going to be part of my job, like as a cop psychiatrist. And I'm like, why is it part of your job? <laughs> like, what exactly? <laughs> What, why he's a he's a psychologist who works with the depart with the, the police department, and yet Lochi is calling him up to go to crime scenes, time and time again. He's showing him information, what? showing him evidence. What? Hey, you got to meet me at this crime scene. We got to see this dead kid. And I'm like, right. why are you bringing? And then Martin Sheen starts believing he's on the case yeah. and saying things like, you know, uh, well, this kind of evidence is inadmissible. Like, you're not a cop. What difference does it make? Now he's smoking cigarettes. His jacket sleeves are rolled up. He's like a cop on the edge now. Oh. Over 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 a story that he has no investment in. That's the thing. Like he gets so amped up about this Santeria problem in the city. Over not over he's not involved. It's literally like he just involves himself to the point where if I were a magician, I would cast a spell on him myself. <laughs> yes. Because I'm like, you're getting you're not even invited. Why are you doing this? And then his girlfriend's the oh same way. God. Like suddenly she, she, his new girlfriend, the wife dies in the beginning and he gets a new girlfriend. Helen Shaver, like, wonderful actor. Great again, actress. trapped in this situation. Yeah, not her fault that she's a great actor. And uh, there's a scene where he goes, uh, what do you know about, there's this like kind of Trump-like character. He's a rich guy and he's a real estate mogul. And he ends, of course, surprise, surprise, yep. he's he's in on the satanic cult. Oh my God. And, and, and just like little things like this, like Sheen goes, what do you know about him? And she goes, not much. He dabbled in real estate from 1973 to 1974, and then he is a high end, and he, she, he gives his whole bio. I'm like, well, that's kind of a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, and it, gives it us nothing. says nothing. And then she's like suddenly overhears a conversation she shouldn't have heard. Now she's breaking into the office and investigating things. It's It became like Naked Gun almost. It did. It did. It, there, there, uh, there are, and see, this is, I mean, look, this is a screenplay problem, folks. I do want to say Whenever I sense this, and I do have a psychic ability, I will admit, to sense studio interference. All right? It is a gift. It's a gift. I think this isn't, I don't, I don't think this was John Schlesinger's cut of this movie. I, I can't believe that it would I be. I don't think the guy that made Midnight Cowboy and Marathon Man 
gave this to the studio and said, this is my cut, make release this movie. I just don't think that happened. I, I, I want to believe that with every fiber of my being. Like even, I, I wouldn't even be surprised if they did reshoots of certain scenes because like the lead bad guy, some of the close-ups of him, like when he turns the camera and stuff, are so artificial looking. They almost look like they're not part of the film. But there were times where he turns around and gives that scary look. And uh, and it looked like it was almost a separate shot from all the rest of the movie. And I go, I wonder if they did reshoots. or it, Like, that's how... I'm not saying they did. I'm just saying that's how disjointed it looks at times. I think all all bets are off on terms of in terms of what kind of interference they could have gotten from the studio. You know, Um Schlesinger wasn't an, an A-list director at this time, you know? He he was not, like, a guy who had full control over his movies. He didn't have final cut. I can't imagine he had final cut. It sometimes feels, like, unprofessional, and I know that's not the case here. These are at least professionals. So I think the movie was probably a half hour longer with more connective tissue, more scenes with Richard Mazur, who plays um, the lawyer friend, you know? Uh, Martin Sheen's lawyer friend. Now, I, I, we know Richard. I know Richard. He's just, I'm an actor in New York. You know Richard yep. Mazur. Like, he's a I know fixture yep. here. Great yep. guy. Great, great actor. Amazing human. A million, million things. Like, more, he's got a longer resume than almost any actor you could name. When you see somebody like Richard Mazur look like he's trying to make a part work, or when anybody looks like they're working too hard who has that much experience, it's the director. Something's gone, something's up, something's up. And I also think that maybe also it was studio interference. Like there could have been three other scenes with Richard Mazur that established that relationship that made you go, oh, now we get the tone. Now everybody's kind of big acting, but it makes more sense because we can see this, the whole plan that the director had. But when a studio comes in and says, wow, we're late for time. The tests have been bad. Let's cut this, this, and this because we don't need it for story. And if the only thing you had was a mood piece, then you're, then you're in trouble. I'd like to put your director theory to test right now. So let's pretend I'm like Richard Mazur in 1987, a world-class actor, and you're directing this film. And I said to you, here's what I'm thinking. Uh, I'll, I'm a lawyer, but I do like magic. And then, and then in, mm. in the last like minute of the movie, I'm going to become a Navy SEAL and just like kill everyone with pinpoint mm. accuracy and then use my magic to get the yeah. bad guy. I would think, mm-hmm. what, what would you say at that point? I would say if I were John Schlesinger, what I think he'd say, what he said, I think was faster, funnier. <laughs> so true. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I, yes. You know, Richard Mazur turning into, okay, first of all, I also don't, Richard Mazur plays a lawyer, a New York lawyer who's a college friend of Martin Sheen's, uh, like kind of like the uncle, the fun uncle to this little kid. And he's a good he guy. He's and he, and his little shtick is that he's he likes he's a he's an amateur magician, so he's always playing with cards or doing little tricks or little little games that he's playing and little puzzles and like in every shot he's doing it in every scene he's got it's as if they're trying to go remember he's there's magic don't forget because it comes later he's gonna do some magic. That's later. actually said at one point. Someone and goes, Mon- remember when your son found that thing? I'm like, why don't you just turn to the camera and say it to us? Because you're talking to us. But go ahead. Over and over <laughs> and over again. And then lo and behold, he comes in. Spoiler alert. Complete spoiler alert. He kind of semi-saves part of the day at the end. And he comes and he's got a gun, which he knows how to use oh, like all lawyers. Like know. a seal. And then he has a magic trick that includes like sending a flaming fireball of like acid into somebody's face. And I'm like, where do you, where do you have that gag in your repertoire? 
at the off when you're just killing time at the office. And his kills were all like center point forehead shots <laughs> direct from it's from like, like up in a just yeah. picking off people left and right and then uses the fire. It's to, incredible. It's, it's, he's just a crack shot. I mean, so I feel, you know, I love Richard Mazur and he actually amazing. like makes this part entertaining yes. and he fills it. And, and it's like, I think kind of, I feel like maybe he kind of maybe knew this movie was a little ridiculous. So he feel, just went I, with I it. I feel it. I could feel it. The people that escaped the, the, uh, the gravitational pull of this movie are Richard Mazur. Um, now my friend, full disclosure, uh, Liz Wilson is, is it was a dear family friend. Like I love this woman was like my godmother. What was she? What and part? she plays, she plays the, the older, uh, the, remember the older couple yes. in the film that yes. take the kid away for the weekend. They're like the family friend. Okay. And she's got like a scarf around her head. Yeah. Liz Wilson is, a uh, was a national treasure. Yep. She literally was a grand dame of the Broadway stage and, and done theater since the fifties and was in Hitchcock movies and like just incredible person. One of my favorite people. So it's a treat to see her and she elevates everything she's in. You know, she's, she brings this class to it, this sense of like fun. And, um, and then you got guys like Robert Loggia who I love, but it's just like, you need to tone it down. Just bring it down, man. Just, tw just 20% less Loggia would be fine in every scene. But I feel like I I'll take high. I'll take, I'll take top of the line Loggia, like, like, uh, broad logia doing logia fine but if, if he's saying things that are human if he's not spouting well dialogue that is 1955 gumshoe cliched film noir every line he says we have a clip i think, I think. we do this is my favorite line in the movie <laughs> all right they've just come from a crime scene martin sheen was woken up out of a deep sleep for some reason to, as a therapist to come see a crime scene by robert logia and after they investigate the body and they see the crime scene, they go to a bar where Logia has to drink because it's so hard. And he actually says to the bartender, and the, as the camera pushes in, he goes, hit me again. <laughs> Which is my second favorite line besides this one coming up here at the end of this exchange. Citizen's got a right to his own religious preference. That's the First Amendment. A citizen performs a human sacrifice. I'd say he forfeits that right. Come on. The psycho kills a kid. He makes it look like a religious ritual. That kid was cut up with the precision of a surgeon, not a psychopath. What are you afraid of? That Lopez is a suspect? That it's one of your own? It's not this religion, is it? I don't call cutting up chickens a religion. Maybe you spend as much time in a barrio as I have, you wouldn't ask so many dumb questions. <laughs> a barrio. I mean, I, first, oh. first of all, Martin Sheen says, uh, you know, I'm analyzing a patient. That sounds like a pretty good lead. A lead? A suspect. A lead. Like, so which is it? Are you an investigative cop or are you treating a patient? Because right now you're doing... He's a therapist. He's a theracop. He's a therapist that for some reason Robert Loggia just has a crush on and wants to call up all the time. <laughs> like, oh my yeah. ball. I feel like we haven't... I feel like we could explain some things. Okay. Go all on. right. So let's let's talk about what's happening in this movie because we got excited. Mm -hmm. we, we got out ahead of it. After Martin Sheen's wife dies in the beginning of the movie, we flash forward about a year and he's moved back to New York where he went to college to work as a, <clears throat> a psychoanalyst who works for the police department in part. I didn't know they were that well paid at the NYPD <laughs> shrinks office. Didn't know that they could afford a brownstone <laughs> on the Upper West Side. Didn't know that, but apparently oh, yeah. they could. 
and, and a maid. Uh, a live-in maid with a live-in maid. He's got a live-in maid who's who is actually one of my favorite things in this movie. I think it really needs to be said. Also, and and also coincidentally, live-in maid in his uh, upstairs downstairs brownstone uh, in New York City as a uh, NYPD psychiatrist, and uh, she also happens to be a Santeria expert, so that works out well. Indeed, um, I believe this maid uh, in the film is played by uh, Carla Pinza. I believe that's her name. I, I love that character. I think she's really great in the movie, and and she has a lot of heavy lifting. She has a lot of really emotional stuff to play, um, and she does a great job. She brings some authenticity to this. Anyway, <clears throat> a series of murders start happening in the city that look to be like human sacrifices. Uh, young boys about 10 years old are being discovered um, kind of on top of makeshift altars with flowers and chicken blood and stuff. And they've been surgically kind of cut open. And dressed as a combination of uh, Mad Max Thunderdome children uh, mixed with Tarzan. Yes, it, it, quite do. exactly. They are they are dressed in like 1930s versions of jungle attire. Yes. It is embarrassing. Yes. As a sidebar to this, we see a man get off an airplane and come through customs in New York, much like uh, they what they've ripped off from um, the the Seven Ups and from uh, the Gene Hackman movie French Connection. Mm. Feels a lot like they're stealing from that movie then. And this guy comes off the plane, who's this very striking uh, character. He's got a suitcase full of um, uh, weird kind of like artifacts and what looks like ritualistic stuff. And he's got a, a, a staff, a carved cane. He's got piercing blue eyes. And he seems to have come off the plane from an African country we don't know where. This character then is appears at these crime scenes and we realize, oh, he's this he must be a, a, a magician who's doing these murders. We don't know why. Um, at this first murder, we meet uh, Jimmy Smiths, who's a cop who has been um, uh, somehow entangled with this case and with the black magic that's going on and um, is compelled to overact more than any good actor I've seen be compelled to overact. I was going to say, I'm going to say it. I love Jimmy Smith. I don't know what, I think this might've been the first thing he did after getting out of school. And he was just doing theater and didn't know how to be in a movie yet or something. It takes an overactor to recognize one. And I watched him, <laughs> working so hard I started sweating my joke out loud to myself with no one in the room was if he were actually a cop he'd be on suspension for overacting just for sweating too much oh, just it's, you it's, don't need to 20% again, less sweat not all his fault because for example you would think like I know you as a director would say hey Maddie, but let's, let's let's bring it back a little bit we, we get it and and, it, and then you also wouldn't leave the camera on me six times for six minutes a shot yeah. And just watch no. me struggle and writhe in pain for when it's no. doing nothing to advance the scene. It's just Absolutely. him. It's watching him That's work. Again, example of a director failing a, a, a team of actors. And I just, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, I guess, because I feel like a lot of actors get sometimes blamed for performances when they are really their job. If they're good is to, is to deliver what is asked of them. And, and and can right? I say a, editor, too? Because an editor might be able to find... Because he's not a... We all know Jimmy Smith is not a bad actor. It, couldn't you, as an editor, find a minute and a half of that 12 minutes he does of struggling? And, and you'd, you'd think back on that movie and go, boy, he gave a powerhouse performance. Same thing. 
mm-hmm. but you just don't show it for mm-hmm. eight minutes and all the in-betweens. It's, it's like, oh. Yeah, he was done a terrible disservice from from the director and from the team. And I and I felt bad for him. And I I mean, it's look, he, he's a good actor. This it's not like it's embarrassing. It's no. just too much. He's like too much. He's just acting a, up a storm when <laughs> the reality of the situation, that character would have to keep himself together more. Yeah, yes. Yes. Like there's a scene where he meets his end in a diner. And I was thinking uh, he sits down. And he's so over the top. It's it's just he's clearly in such pain and so whatever's going on with him. And I thought to myself, um, the the guy who owned the place like serves him. He asks for agua caliente, hot water, and something else. And the guy serves him and watches him do this whole procedure. And I'm just going like, here's how this would go in New York City, okay? Tony, you be Jimmy Smith and sit down, and I'll be the bar owner, right? Ask for agua hot water, right? Okay, you yeah. be Jimmy Smith. Go ahead. Oh, uh, uh, can I have? Uh, uh, can I please have get some problem my establishment? Like that's yeah, like, no human being would like come into a place like that and be just like kind of watched no. and like it's just not let alone like take out packets of drugs and like put them in his tea and have a whole fit. They'd be like, yeah, get out. In New York get City, out. are you kidding me? You come limping into a place like that looking like him, like, hey, out of yeah. here, buddy. Oh. But no, look, here's the thing. This is why this show's awkward. I've literally, I've always loved Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith is a great actor. He's been great forever. He never really got as much credit as I think he's deserved. He's also a really good theater mm-hmm. actor. I'm, Amelia seen him on stage and says he's just fantastic. You know, what so, we just described is not his fault. This is, it's not his fault that in real life no, a person would, would treat that differently. Someone's got to know that and go like, all right, how can we redo the scene and make it somewhat on planet Earth? Right. And I I just feel like it's... it's um. You know, directors hide behind a lot of stuff. They hide behind other people's work. They take credit for other people's things all the time. You know, I, I mean, I direct stuff and I know because I've done that. We we do that. That's part of the gig. But like, you need to step up and go, this is on me. Mm. This is on a director. Mm. You get this this crew together. There's no reason this this that every individual scene had to feel compromised on the in the acting department from this team of actors oh, come on speaking of which i think this is a good time to bring up uh the lead the man who carries this thing across the finish line from moment one harris Eulen. harris Eulen is so good in this movie. oh you're talking about martin sheen sorry yeah uh martin sheen and um well i'm just gonna say this you sent me, I asked for some audio from this movie. I picked, my favorite line of the movie is, if you had spent as much time in the barrio as me, you wouldn't ask so many stupid questions. Um, and then I said, just send me what all or else you want. And I don't think it needs any setup because yeah. I think people are going to get the, the deal here. This is just called, you titled this, <laughs> Scream, <laughs> Scream and Sheen. Here we go. <clears throat> oh, Jesus! Lisa, no! Oh my God, no! Chris, don't touch it! I'm with Psych Services, NYPD! Thanks a lot! Chris! 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 Shut up and listen to me! Do you know you almost killed yourself? I Come back here! Chris! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Get away from it! Get out! You don't understand your fire! Go! Right back in the get this dark over Christ's sake! Shut out! I don't wanna hear! I don't wanna hear! Is that clear enough? Jessica! 
Oh, oh my, my god, dude. I'm, I'm crying. Oh. Right now. I laughed so hard when I made that. <laughs> and I can't stop now. He does so much screaming in this movie. It's like literally the most notable thing about it is this poor bastard has to scream through the whole thing in scenes that don't require any screaming at all. That don't they don't even need you to raise your voice. He's shrieking. Oh God. I need a level three and he gets an eleven the entire time. Oh Grass. I will say in, in this movie's defense. Yes. To kind of right. to kind of just come to some yes, kind of closure okay. here. Wrap this up. Make us feel I better. Do, I, I do like the father-son relationship here. I think the kid's He's really wicked good. good. I think that kid brings a lot. He's awesome. Um and uh, he, he doesn't even complain about his costume at the end. Like, he's just, he's uh, 100% professional. Didn't need to see the, and the full loincloth on the child from the first shot. Don't awful. know why we got that, it's but okay. Awful. And um, I thought that, like, the best thing about the movie really is the is the relationship between the two of them that Sheen and this kid had as 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 actors. I believe that he was a dad. I, be, I kind of believe they, they had this relationship, you know, um... That was kind of touching. It didn't go anywhere in the story, but they did a lot of nice work together. And I felt like Schlesinger as a director understands those scenes better than like, in a way, I feel like Schlesinger is just a weird choice to do these harm. Like he should just do a drama about a family, the, you know, yes. and it's the closest the movie got to good moments were between him and, and the kid. And there's a scene where the kid hugs the new mom after being mean to her and cruel to her, which is actually kind of yeah. the first time I felt like a little, Oh, that's sweet. But then yeah. the writer and director just totally forget about the kid. And he doesn't matter to them because like, okay, for example, who's watching the kid when Martin Sheen's going on all these, um, mid, you know, two in the morning to the morgue. He goes across the street and bangs the new girlfriend, leaves the kid alone. The, we know that the maid goes home at night because they showed us that early on. She goes home at night. She said good night and she's going home to her apartment. So who's watching the kid? It doesn't matter. We don't care because we need to get to the scary scene across the street. You know what I mean? It was just like no, no attention yeah. to detail, none at all. Well, it, it lacks specificity and authenticity mm. in like these basic mm. ways. And I feel the biggest problem for a horror movie particularly one where you're trying to depict horror in the real world. Like this is New York city. It's not like a haunted Gothic place. It's our New York city. And they missed the boat where I thought a movie like Rosemary's baby really understands that hmm. really believing the authenticity of these simple exchanges between yes. people, like to believe that this is actually how the police behave <sighs> or that a procedure goes down. Then I can relax and get, then I can believe the stuff that is harder to believe. But if I can't really believe that there's a real cop and a, and a you know, this is the way a investigation works, then I'm not going to believe the supernatural stuff, which I didn't. And I thought to, to really close that out, uh, Malik Bowens um, is an actor you've seen in other movies. He plays the big baddie in this movie, but in fact, he's not really, he's, he's actually, kind of being co-opted by Harris Eulin, who's the big, really big baddie. He's the white, rich dude who's kind of controlling everything. This guy is, as a child, caught in this matrix anyway. He's been grown, you know, grown up to be a, a, a voodoo priest. You get the, some type of voodoo priest. I mean, that's the problem. I don't even think they knew what they were talking about. Like, I don't hmm. know what's voodoo or Santeria or they're not very clear, which is insulting, I think. They also really use Malik Bowen's uh, as kind of a boogeyman in a way that I think is totally because he's an extraordinary actor and a really interesting 
guy. Like, I don't know if you know his his history at all. all right, well, I can tell you this. In the movie, uh, Malik, we know actor. nothing about him. Nothing. Until the last no. 13 seconds in that presentation scene where some reason they do a told, yeah. like, whiteboard presentation of why we're doing this, which no one would ever do in that yeah, situation. But we know never. nothing about him. We know nothing except for he's got scary eyes. Like, that's all the director cares about. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. good. And this guy, you know, like, to give you a little background, like, this is an actor who was discovered by one of the most famous British directors, uh, Peter Brook, theater director, who famously went on uh, a a a theater tour of, of African countries with his theater troupe and performed Shakespeare in small villages wow. and got people who were actors in those villages to be in his productions. And it was an extraordinary, like, once-in-a-lifetime experience wow. that Helen Mirren was in that company back in the 60s when wow. this took place. Malik Bowens, apparently, from what I've read, was a was a local who they met there, who they made part of their company on their trip. And he became an act. They basically adopted him into their theater company. And he trained with them. He trained with Peter Brook, who's one of the great theater directors. He was like, became an international thing. And now you got 87. He's like relegated to playing like this stupid boogeyman character in this film by Schlesinger, who should know better. Like he's an English guy, a peer of Richard Brooks, of Peter Brooks. So anyway, little, little, some props to Malik Bowens, who, who oh, didn't get you can- to... He didn't get respect in this movie. You can literally tell that he's a classically trained. Like he, he, he's he, 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 he looks like he could do Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like he, he, you just you're watching this going moves like, brilliantly. He, wicked, and you're going. Yeah. This is going to waste. Yeah. This is going to waste. Yeah. That's all I thought. Though every time he's on screen, I'm like, wow. this is going to waste. Right. And it has some jolt in it because he's so arresting looking and he yes. also makes himself look much more intense than he probably sure. is. But, you know, that's that's kind of like one of the most exciting things in the movie is whenever we get yes. to see him. But he's just misused and we don't get to know him. And it's not. It's weird. And yeah, yeah the, the, they do the scanner eye thing with him with the white eyes. And um, but but we don't know what it means. We don't like he's no. just it's just it's no. just anytime that you have a film that's just going to end at a random warehouse. Do a rewrite, please. <laughs> who knows who goes into a random warehouse? How can you get a group of cult members all dressed in gray into a warehouse that's fully lit and wrapped in plan, like art directed in New York? Doesn't happen. Please find another way to end this movie. There's weird cages upon cages and rooms that are ri- li- in trash bags. There, there, There's like trash yeah. bags, I think. And and it just makes, yes. n- there's nothing. Wrapped there's... in, yeah, it's stupid. And the, oh, the coda ending is... Oh, I... <laughs> Like it, it was laugh out loud funny if it weren't so frustrating, you know. Um, and I don't want to give it away, but oh, shocker, it's not over, you know. There's a it's not over, Santeria's still going. <laughs> okay, I am Go gonna ahead. give it away. Go ahead, I'm please. gonna give it Describe away. How bad it is. Okay, spoiler, spoiler yes. alert, end of yes. the movie. Rescue the, the boy doesn't get killed, the father takes him back to Santa Fe to the homestead, and he takes Helen Shaver with him, the new girlfriend, and they're all a happy family again. But Carrie's style, of course, is a weird ending. There's got to be a spooky ending. So it turns out the dog goes to the barn and it's like something's in the barn and Martin Sheen goes to the barn and it turns out that Helen Shaver has been killing animals and creating sacrifices on this altar in the barn. For how long? God knows. How he didn't discover this before? God knows. My big Pretty point elaborate. is to you. Yes. Thematically. Why in God's name would they make Helen Shaver the one doing that and not the kid or Martin Sheen? 
it, come on. Because because he possessed her with the face makeup thing when the snake the spiders came out of her face. No. This means nothing. It's so stupid. It's so unbelievable. Come on. It went from it was Cobra. Let's go for the. It was as it was like Cobra, the Stallone movie, but not as good. And then it became I don't know what <laughs> they're in a farmhouse, but it's on the ocean. And it's like a it's like a Jeep commercial. He's smiling what? with his dog. What America? What America is know. this, my friend? I don't know. Where? Huge. It starts in middle in in the Midwest in 80, 86, yes. let's say, with a milkman. Yes. That's the other thing. There haven't been milkmen in America for 70 years. Well, Tony, I don't because know what's happening. Ha- we have to shoehorn in her death on standing on the milk. And then we're gonna go to New York City. Well, and he- He's in the brownstone. Then he's on an ocean, but it's a farm, but it's an ocean, and there's a barn, but it's on the water. And he's in a Jeep commercial with his shepherd that we didn't know he had before. It's just disparate. Everything just slapped together so they could get to that last scene where he turns around. There's a question mark. Is it still going on? I'm glad you (laughs) mentioned I'll, I'll end with this. Like, everything... All the small things were so not thought of. They were so artificial. And you mentioned, like, believing a world. Like, there's a quick scene, but it's endemic of the whole problem with the whole thing. It's, it's you're going back to the precinct, and you're watching cops talk. It's just establishing you're at the precinct. They're all sitting mm-hmm. so unnaturally. Like, one guy, two, two cops are sitting on a desk. One's leg is up, one's next to him. Again, I'll say it again, because it's very true. It's like you're watching an insurance commercial that takes place in a cop's uh, office. Everyone's standing and sitting unnaturally. You come in right at the right part of the setup of the joke. They're telling jokes, presumably, but it's like, just like the kitchen scene at the Mm -hmm. beginning, everybody is posed unnaturally. Everyone is talking unnaturally. There's nothing lived in about it. There's nothing real about it. Very true. I mean, a perfect example of this. I wish we could have a visual here for the podcast, but there is a shot that leads a walk and talk through the precinct, which is as staged as you say it is very fake looking. They end up at a very convenient location holding a piece of paper and there's a freaking spotlight yes, on, on the, the paper. paper. Yes, he, Sheen steps into it, which, okay. They walk into a pin yes, spotlight. Tony. Now, it's not like a David Lynch moment where it's supposed like to be meta. kind of like abstract. No. It's just supposed to be basic walk and talk that makes zero sense. It just takes you so, so far out of believing in the believers. Come on. How ironic. I, I, that That's commercials. Yep. And that was a commercial. I'm so glad you brought that up. He steps in the paper that he's looking at goes right in the pin light. Like, oh, my God, what are we doing? Well, there's ways to do that, too, where you don't notice the, that you do it with finesse and you don't see that it's a spotlight on it. And if that was on purpose, I, I don't why. Then I'm just like, well, you're misusing this. I don't. I you don't can, know. Yeah. Why. I don't know. So, why. Yeah. All right. Um, Great ADR in the film. Great ADR, by the way, just to say right here and now, all the ADR when this was stuck. pretty good. Was yeah. Fantastic. Um, there's a kind of a Wilhelm scream. Uh, I, was, the, I was completely when the bad guy. There is a lot yeah. of Wilhelm yeah. screaming. <laughs> Oh, also, have you ever walked into a room with somebody calls you and says, I'm crazy, I'm crazy, come over immediately, I'm going to die. And you walk into their apartment and the person holds a gun and she points it at you and you just casually oh. walk up to them. He's point, Loji is pointing that gun at him for like five minutes and he doesn't have any problem with it at all. I'm here to help you. What do you need? <laughs> all right. I think we're going to leave this one off the shelf. Although I don't know that I've laughed this hard in a long time, so maybe it just goes on for that. We watch it... We... It's just the Sheen screams. I just okay. urge you to get your own collection of Sheen screams and 
brighten if your day. If this podcast ever gets big enough that we have an audience watch party, we're opening the show with with a montage of, of Martin Sheen screaming in this movie. <laughs> 100%. Okay. Excellent. All right, so Tony, uh, this film is going to get a P for pass, unfortunately. But next week, we're going to try yeah. again. We're going to step up to the plate, take another swing at... Stir of Echoes, Kevin Bacon, Zachary David Cope, Catherine Irving. I am one degree of separation away from Kevin Bacon because I delivered a line to him in a movie. That and more on next week's edition of Rated P for Paranormal. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Maddie. I shut the fuck up! Don't tell him to listen to me! Don't tell him to listen to me! EBDB. EBDALA. EBDALA. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Rated P for Paranormal. Please rate, review, and share. It really does make a difference. For more information, to participate, and even donate, go to our main page, anchor.fm slash ratedparanormal. On social media, we're at ratedparanormal. All music is by Andrew Goldens Jr. You can find him on Instagram at kidriga or go to therocketscience.bandcamp.com. This podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by Maddie Blake and Anthony Arkin. Beautiful. I love you. I love you too. Can I have? Uh, uh, can I please have Get some? Get the fuck out of my establishment.